Well, good morning or good afternoon to whoever you are, wherever you are. Today we have uh, some soul, not the Aretha Franklin kind of soul, but we have Jarrett's soul. Guy, guy I was uh, served with for a number of years. Uh, before, we, before we get over to him, I got a message from Al Reed. Al Reed is a uh, veteran uh, who's giving back to veterans. He's a dive instructor freelancing currently in the Southern Dominican Republic, and uh, he instructs confidently to dive master in numerous specialties. What he's doing is he's offering to teach veterans uh, at cost, which is what, what he must pay to the dive center that he's working with. But he, he won't charge a cent for, for any instruction or for teaching. So uh, vets with PTSD or any disabilities at all can contact L on uh, WhatsApp, WhatsApp at plus one, 705-943-1984. L himself is a vet of 30 years service. He served in both conventional and non-conventional units, so he knows his way around the military. He describes his PTSD as a battle and has embraced scuba as something to improve his mental health and overall well-being. I've also asked Al to look into uh, cheap places for uh, vets to stay, because I know you're a bunch of cheap bastards out there, and uh, what might be uh, available for uh, to assist vets with uh, any uh, physical disabilities. So more to follow on that. Um, Al's going to get back to us with that information. So back to you, Jarrett. Welcome to Rock is Bacchus, man. Hey, thanks, Steve. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Um, if you're listening, I hope you're telling others to listen, too. I am. I am. I, I share this all the time. It's uh, it's an excellent uh, initiative on your behalf, and uh, I love it. So uh, pretty damn sharp as a needle. Yes. So let's talk about you here. Uh, sure. Well, you wrote me all those nice medications and prescriptions up. So ah, uh, well, that was before you became a pointy head. <laughs> <laughs> You're now Captain Soul. You, I think you were a sergeant last time we got together. Uh, yeah, when I left the regiment, I was an MWO. Jesus, you did all right. I survived. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, uh, you were also very much in, so you know your way around conventional and non-conventional forces. Uh, mm -hmm. you, were, you were also very much involved with Humint. Correct. So how long, how long did you, well, first of all, what is Humint? Uh, so Humint is the collection of information uh, through human sources. Um, and even though it's called human intelligence, you know, just to remind your viewers that intelligence isn't intelligence until it's processed. So it's all information. And then once it's processed and it goes through its steps, then it becomes intelligence. What do Otherwise, you mean by processed? Uh, so it goes through its steps, through the analysts and all the uh, actual intops, the intelligence operators and stuff, where they take a look at it. Is it relevant? Is it not relevant? Is it true? Is it false? Uh, you know, um, and then once it actually goes through that process, you know, at the ASIC, for example, then it becomes classified as intelligence and it gets its stamp of secret, top secret, you know, whatever it is, right. depending on otherwise anything out there, any, every, every day is just information. It's not intelligence. It's only intelligence if it's relevant. So I guess I know some of what you guys do. I, well, I was in uh, at Graceland back in Afghanistan back in the day. Um, it was some of, some of your, uh, 
your guys, <laughs> you think of them as spooks or spies or something once you once you get to meet the guys, because um, they they're very much low key. They were around the camp, but you, nobody really knew who they were, sort of thing. And uh, yeah, we always got that stink eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Who are you, and what are you doing in our playground? And uh, anyways, so a couple of your boys came over and said, "Hey, would you mind looking at this?" Uh, and I'm not giving anything away here. Uh, would you mind having a look at this uh, this informant we have? And I, so I asked what, what what was going on, and they said, "Well, he's a high level informant, and we want to keep him happy and healthy, or at least happy, because we don't expect that he'll be living much longer, <laughs> because he was <laughs> he was giving information away." Um, so he yep. he had received some sort of uh, injury to his hand and never got it looked after. And actually, by the time I got to it, um, there wasn't much I could do for it either. And uh, yeah. I gave him some physio exercises, but I was kind of hooked in. I said, who are you guys? And, you know, what do you, what do you do? So they, they gave me a rundown and sort of gave me like the, uh, the um, soft recruiting sort of touch. You know, you might be really interested in doing this, this, and this kind of thing. And yeah. uh, I said, fuck, you have a lot of paperwork to do. I already have enough paperwork to do. <laughs> I didn't really want to do m- more. Uh, so I, I think I missed out on a good opportunity there. It really does sound interesting. It is, uh, I mean, there is a ton of paperwork. I'm not going to lie on that aspect. Uh, it requires a lot of research, uh, a lot of analysis on the, the. Uh, they're called source handlers now, source handler operators. They actually became a trade recently, which oh, yeah. is an awesome step for them. Um, What's your you know, but, look like? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, uh, I know what their unit crest looks like, but I'm not sure what their cap badge turned out to be. Mm, yeah, it'd be interesting to see it. I'd have to call up my buddy and see what they put forward to DHH. Um, but the, uh, you know, what you experienced on your end, and I did that on my tour as well, you have to build rapport with your sources. They, You know, there has to be some trust there if they're going to share information and risk their lives. Mm-hmm. Um and part of that is a give and take relationship. So, you know, I had a gentleman as well. He had tuberculosis and, uh, you know, we, we knew there wasn't much we could do without, you know, major treatment or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But to build rapport, we brought him to a medic that we trusted and said, you know, just, this is the guy, um, go along with it. You know, we get, you know, you can only do so much, but just this act alone, uh, means a great deal to this person and to building that relationship that we had with our source. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, little things like that uh, happened, a, happened a lot. Yeah, well, you could tell this guy was uh, these, this Af- Afghanistan, Afghan uh, Taliban guy. You could, you could tell he was fairly high up in the chain of uh, food chain because he had such mm-hmm. good teeth, you know, and all, those, <laughs> and all those guys, well, they all had money and they all went to Pakistan for... for uh, Dental work, so they all they all seem to have good teeth. The lower guys yeah. are wrong; their teeth weren't so good. Yeah, if if you've ever been to Africa, and I think you have, it's oh, yeah. there. There's upper class and poverty. There's no middle class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Afghanistan is the same. There's you know the people that are well off, and then there's poverty. Yeah, yeah. It's it's to any to anybody that hasn't been to the dark continent. Um, it, it's it's amazing, and you you see it you, you see it more. Well, I saw it more so in uh, Africa because I did a lot more traveling around uh, than I did in Afghanistan. And uh, the the like you said, 
you see the very rich and next door is the dirt dirt poor. It was, yeah. uh, it was, it was, a, it was quite an eye opener, quite, yeah, quite, quite an adventure. Yeah. It's quite a contrast. It really uh, shows you how the rest of the world lives and how privileged we are in our, in our uh, Western world. How privileged we are and how, um, how much we bitch about not being privileged, you know, <laughs> so we, yeah. we as a society don't seem to realize how privileged and uh, lucky we are. We yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole other uh, conversation. That's a rabbit hole. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, we're quite famous for rabbit holes on this program. So what? Are, what <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's getting out of the, the rabbit hole. That's the problem. So yeah. what, so can you sort of tell us what you did with the, uh, with the guys? Like, did you, uh, or with you? Uh, Did you go out on yes. field ops or? Yeah, for sure. So I think, I think the best place to start, Steve, I'd go back to the beginning of how I got introduced to humans. Yeah. Um, and that would have been in, in 2001. So in 2001, when I was just a lowly corporal, uh, I was actually on my combat intelligence course. Uh, which today I think is called the tactical intelligence operator course or something like that. Um, Maybe you but, can uh, contrast the two of those later on. Yeah. And it was being instructed and you probably know him by uh, Sean Prendergast. Yeah. And uh, he kind of mentioned it to me and uh, while we were on course, I was like, Oh, that sounds pretty cool. And then shit hit the fan. Uh, I was on course during September 11th Yeah, and uh you know, the bug went up and I was part of the IRTFL at the time, uh, attached to three PPCLI. And what's and, the IRTFL? Uh, that's the uh, immediate reaction task force land. Okay. Um, and those are the guys that are on the 24, 48 hours notice to move. It rotates through brigades. Uh, just if something does happen somewhere that, you know, they're packed up and ready to go and respond quickly. Okay. And, uh, so, Shortly, what do I think, what was it, five months, I deployed at the end of January 2002 to Kandahar, Afghanistan. And uh, when I got there, it was only a 700-man team, and they were short personnel all around. Obviously, a lot of the positions went to the combat arms and the infantry. Right. Um, but the support positions were pretty scarce, and the incel at the time was pretty small. And Sean remembered he was there with me and he remembered me from the combat in course. And he said, Hey man, he's like, uh, I know you truckers aren't too busy right now. Would you be interested in coming over and working with us? We need an extra set of hands. And I said, yeah, sure. So I went over and, uh, the warrant, uh, Elaine Billado. Yeah. He, uh, told me, he's like, listen, we do this thing. It's called a pick patrol, which is psyops intelligence and simic pick PIC yeah. and it was a joint patrol that we did with and, and sorry you might want to explain what CIMIC is so CIMIC is the civilian military cooperation piece um, the handing out school supplies rebuilding schools uh, you know digging wells providing water food all that kind of the stuff. winning hearts and minds part winning hearts and minds stuff yeah. exactly um, so we were doing these joint patrols with the 101st airborne who were there at the airfield with us um, so I said, yeah, man, sounds interesting. So he gave me a few pointers and he sat me down and gave me like a day of training or whatever. And, uh, he's like, all right, you're off. So it was myself, uh, captain Alex Watson and a Strathcona 
and Lord help me, I can't remember his name. Um, but the three of us and this 101st Airborne guy, Sergeant Chazelle, would go out every day and patrol around in our little AOR around Kandahar Airfield and just to the border of Kandahar City. We weren't allowed in Kandahar City at that time. Only uh, Task Force Dagger, which was JTF2, was allowed into Kandahar City at that time. Um, So, yes, we just rolled around. For good reason, yeah. It was a – that's a whole other freaking – uh, story I can tell. Well, just just um, to let, interrupt you again, so so people understand why uh, the uh, Kandahar at the time, uh, Kandahar has traditionally been a Taliban um, stronghold, stronghold, yeah. and uh, you guys were just first getting on the ground, so the the threat threat wasn't completely known to you, and uh, you guys just driving into Kandahar would have been driving into an ambush. Yeah, absolutely. It was still a very hot uh, area. Um, the runway at Kandahar Airfield still had craters in it from artillery and bombs that the Americans had dropped to take over and seize the airfield yeah. with the help of the uh, Northern Alliance. Um, you could hear the explosions in Kandahar City from the airfield daily. Yeah. Uh, so it was still a crazy place, wild, wild west. Um, and Kandahar Airfield was just beginning it was nowhere near the size if there's any listeners who had been there later on in the years kandahar airfield was tiny at that point it was not the behemoth that it became um but yes we went on these patrols all around the area all the way down to the border of pakistan spin boldak and uh every little village every little mud hut that we could find we would stop and talk to these people and try and gather information and, you know, just force protection stuff to see what was around us um, to see if there was any little pockets of, of Taliban or resistance fighters or whatever it would be in the area that may launch an attack against the airfield. Um, so that's how I got introduced to it. And then towards the end of the tour, Warren Alain Bilodeau said, man, you, sh- you need to, when you get back to Canada, you need to apply. There's a can for gen that's going to come out. Uh, you'll see it. He was put your name in, and uh, I'll support you, and, and away you go. And uh, so I did that, and I was on the second last course. The course was originally taught in the U.K. Mm-hmm. at Chicksands uh, Basin in the U.K., yeah. and I was the second last course for Canadians to go to the U.K. to take the course. Um, and if you've ever been on course with the Brits – it's nothing like the Canadian training system. No, there's no nice, there's no niceties exchanged in the Brit training world. <laughs> no, I, I did a competition with them, uh, or was part of a competition with them uh, back in the days of Bosnia, and uh, yeah, they are they are uh, still a what our our people would call uh, backwards. Oh, not, not backwards so much as, as uh, not politically correct. Yeah. Oh, not politically correct. I mean, uh, I had one instructor, his accent was so thick. I'd have to look to my fire team partner. Um, the, one of the instructor was from Wales and I looked at my fire team partner who was from Scotland and I'm like, what the hell did he just say? Like you translate for me. <laughs> Neither one of them knew what the other one was saying. <laughs> yeah. And like the first, my introduction to the course was like, are you a Canadian? Like, yes, sir. He's like, are you French? I'm like, no, sir. He's like, thank fuck. <laughs> Cause everybody knows the Brits are not big fans of the French. No, even our French, <laughs> even our French. Yeah. And, uh, 
but uh, I remember, so we went through the course. So I'm learning how to drive on the other side of the road while I'm on this human course, you know, learning British tactics and stuff as well at the same time, um, keeping my head above water and, and fighting my way through this course. Um, and I remember the one of the assessments, I got dragged into the office and, and he's like, how do you think you did? I'm like, man, I, I felt pretty good on that one. It felt really good. I thought it, you know, executed well. My timings were on. He's like, bollocks, you got a two. So we were rated on a system out of five, and three was a pass, two was a fail. He's like, you got a two, you bombed it, you suck. Go back to the drawing board. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, Where's the shit sandwich part? You got the bread, you got the shit, you got the, the bread. He just gave you the shit. Yeah, I'm like, wow, this is uh, so, so different to the Canadian training system. But uh, it was one hell of an experience, made some good friends over there. And uh, Can can you talk a little bit about what that, uh, like how long was the training and sort of what did you touch on? Well, at that time, the British course was six weeks, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, It's much longer now. They've added to it, incorporated a lot of new different things. but it's basically learning how to execute um, meetings and missions in three different fashions. So there's, and this is open source information, so I'm not giving anything away. Um, But in the human intelligence world, there's three different types. There's discrete human intelligence operations. There's covert human intelligence operations. And there's overt human operations. Um, and they just teach you how to, you know, do those, uh, you know, how to be discreet, how to take discreet photos, um, how to blend in without looking obvious, um, you know, how to do cold calls. Because not all your sources just walk up and knock on the door and say, hey, I want to give you information. Yeah. You have to go find them, um, which involves, you know, a, a cold call that involves you knocking on a door and, and uh, for potentially seeking out somebody that you think, and and sometimes that person cannot know who you work for. Uh, if you want to go into you know the discreet uh, overt method, um, you know there's cover stories and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Uh, just like the CIA, any movie out there, you see it. The best movie I can compare human to is, uh, what is that with the 24 hours, the one on Bin Laden? Uh, oh, Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty. I hated that movie. <laughs> uh, it was a long movie, but that is a really good example of human. Gathering. Um, and how human works to find people. Um, and if it wasn't for human, they probably never would have found Osama Bin Laden. That's true. No, I'm thinking, uh, uh, what was the one where the uh, oh, buddy just pulled all the uh the wires on that were connected to the um the explosive the mortar rounds or whatever the fuck they were they were buried in the dirt oh that was that uh eod one yeah fuck that's the one i hated <laughs> yeah that one was really right out of her yeah. so back to right cold calls for a second uh, yeah um I'm I'm familiar with cold calls for, for from my days where I was selling encyclopedias and insurance door to door, which I should do a podcast on. Um, 
But so what do you do? You knock on the door and say, hey, are you interested in learning more about Jesus Christ? Or, you know, what, what do you say? Um, well, you just, it's headhunting too, right? You have to identify somebody that has access. Okay. Um, and initially you start out with nothing. Like I can, I can tell you that my sources ranged from a farmer, uh, just a Joe Blow farmer in Afghanistan, all the way up to, uh, you know, government officials. Now, what was the motivation for, uh, for giving you information? It varied from person to person. Uh, part of the problem, and the area was also saturated with humans, right? It wasn't just Canada doing humans in Afghanistan. You had the Brits, you had the Americans, you had the Dutch, you had all these other agencies, civilian agencies. You had the CIA out there, you had FBI, you had all these agencies out there collecting info. Right. Um, so it's saturated. Um and some countries pay a lot more for information than what Canada does, right? That's a surprise. So some, and this is where you had to vet your, your sources and, and determine their, their motivation and to see if they were legit. Yeah. Um, were they in it just because they knew you would pay them for money or, you know, uh, or were they actually interested in protecting their their country, their family? Did they have good intentions? Did they believe in what, you know, was going on in Afghanistan at the time? Uh, or were they just giving you information to take out an enemy? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. happened, One that happened too. Yeah. It's like, hey, this guy's an asshole. I think you should go and look at him. And then, yeah. Well, the uh, guy, guy I mentioned that I uh, tried to help out with his injury, um, the boy said that uh, he, he was doing it because he was starting to feel guilty about the people he was killing and whether he was actually killing them uh, for Allah or, or this was something that was outside of his normal beliefs. So he was oh, totally. getting an attack of, uh, an attack of conscience, conscious. Yeah, and there was a lot of good sources out there. Um, there was a lot of good intentions and motivations. You, We ran across a double agent. Um, uh, you know, from Pakistan, there was an ISI guy from Pakistan we ran across. He was a double agent just trying to collect information on the coalition who was working in Afghanistan to take it back to the Pakistani government. And so who, we who are heavily we, involved in the, uh, the shenanigans that happened in Afghanistan. Oh yeah. Like that border was a freaking sieve, man. It was brutal. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we played our games with each other. It was quite comical. You know, we would have our, it was kind of, what's that spy game? I can't remember. Tinker, ta Tinker, soldier, spy or whatever. Yeah, Tinker, Taylor, soldier, spy. Tinker, Taylor, soldier, yeah. You know, play those games of uh, whatever. Tit for tat. So, yeah, our, our sources ranged from everything. Um, and then your sources, as you build trust, you can, you rate them and reliability and, and you end up with bad sources and you end up with good sources. And if you have a bad source, you thank them and, you know, do you discard them and you move on to the next, uh, to the next one. Well, how many deployments did you do in uh, Afghanistan? I did four. And how, how long did you guys usually deploy in there? Uh, the human teams, we were there, man, probably eight months. Cause you had a, it's not like your typical handover that you would have with, uh, 
you know, just come in, the other guy leaves the trench and you jump in the trench and that's your handover. You'd have to meet sources and exactly. If they introduce, build that rapport, explain what's, you know, Hey, this is normal. We do, you know, this guy has to go, he has a family back in Canada or whatever. He left the oven on, he has to go type thing. Um, and, uh, so it's, you know, eight months. That's a, it's a long time. Yeah. It wasn't your standard six month tour. It was, uh, including the handover. You were looking at eight months by the time you got out of there. Yeah. Well, how long were you, uh, with the unit? Uh, well, the unit didn't exist when I did human intelligence. Right. Um, it was, uh, like your previous, uh, caller, like Bill said, um, you would get the qualification and then you would go back to your home unit. And then whenever they needed you, they would call you up and say, Hey, we're building a team. We're going, you know, uh, are you interested? And of course I put my hand up every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Pick me, pick me. And did your CEO have to authorize this each time or was there sort of an agreement that when you were needed, you'd go? Yeah. Well, the CEO had to authorize it each time, mm-hmm. but they were pretty good. Yes. Um, on my last, so my last tour to Afghanistan was in uh, 2007, Task Force 107. And then they were building a team in 2009, and they asked me again. They said, hey, we're heading back. Do you want to go? And, of course, I put up my hand. Well, that, my chain of command stepped in. They said, no, you have, you've been there four times. You've done your duty. We're kind of worried about your mental health. Um, you're not going back to Afghanistan for a fifth time. Yeah. Um, so my chain of command actually stepped in and said, no. Well, we'll, so I said, we'll touch okay, on. screw you. So I applied for CANSOF, <laughs> and they approved that instead. So I ended up in an even higher tempo unit going to CANSOF. I, I, I was going to say we, we'll, touch, we'll touch on uh, on why your uh, command wanted to shut you down on that. <laughs> but yeah. you jumped right from the uh, the pan into the fire going over over to the essentially essentially as i mean my my tours to afghanistan so my first i would even say my just afghanistan my tempo at that point was insane um so my first tour was in 1994 to croatia Mm -hmm. and then i had a six-year gap and then i went to bosnia in 2000 and then i went to kandahar in 2002 kabul in 2004 twice and then back to Kandahar in 2007. So between 2000 and between 2000 and 2007, I deployed five times. So op tempo was high. Before, tempo was high. before we get into the possible damage that can occur to a person, what, what was your most re- rewarding experience with, uh, with human? Oh man, that's, I don't know if you can narrow that down. Um, so one, I would say the most rewarding experience is our, the job of human is force protection. Yeah. It's to collect information. It's to disrupt those IED cells, disrupt the enemy. And that's just an Afghanistan scenario. But in general, their job is force protection, support the government, find out all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was rewarding. You know, when you caught the bad guys, when you did that, that job, you're like, yeah, that guy's taken off the table. Yeah. And we had... We had a chart in our office of all the heads of Taliban, and as as they slowly got knocked off, we would put a big X through them. Yeah. Um, I think the second most rewarding thing was that the job of humans, 
I got to see a country different than what the infantier on the ground saw. Um, you know, I got to learn the history of Afghanistan. I got to learn the people of Afghanistan and their culture and, uh, into their lives. So I, I, my perspective of Afghanistan is completely different than anyone else's perspective. Which, which sort of leads me to, to the question was why, because, and, and you, you've, you're well-versed in the history of the country. I'm somewhat aware of what, what's happened through the history. Why do empires keep going into that fucking place? <laughs> I mean, have we well, learned nothing? Well, I think the intentions at first were good and for the right reasons, obviously, you know, September 11th and, you know, they wanted to take out, get Bid Laden and dismantle that aspect, you know, mm-hmm. and they couldn't let that go unanswered. Right. Um, which is great. I just don't think anybody has learned over the history of conflict that they get sucked into these conflicts and they don't realize the vacuum that they create when they go to pull out. Yeah. Um, which is surprising because America went through it with Vietnam. Canada has been through it with Cyprus and Croatia and the former Republic of Yugoslavia. Um, you know, we should have known going into this, that it wasn't going to be a short war. I, I agree with you. And we're going down a rabbit hole, but uh, let's yeah. run with it for a second. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you that there was a good reason to go in, um, get bin Laden, get the hell out. But some somebody in the Good Idea Club comes up with a, why don't we stick around a little longer and we'll make enemies of the Taliban by doing so. Uh, but we'll give women human rights. We'll make gr- girls go to school. We'll build some wells. We'll win hearts and minds. Uh, we'll... we'll imposed democracy on this country and there was just so much so much many different ideas from the good idea club mission creep nobody really could get a grip on any one thing so oh yeah 100 percent. and there's a lot of good books written on uh the political side of afghanistan and the decisions that were made um i couldn't i'd have to go look at my library at home um but there's the political decisions and the pressures between nations and NATO, you know, it's insane. Like when you go to pull, when a country goes to pull out, it seems like an easy thing. Like, Oh, we're just going to leave. But your commitment to NATO, if you're a member of NATO and when you leave that void, they have to fill it with something. Yeah. You can't just take in. So there's a lot of negotiations going on at a much higher level about, you know, what's happening on the ground, which is how you end up staying. It's like, well, if you stay for one more year or two more years, I can just imagine the conversations yeah. at the prime minister level. Right. And well, uh, we'll, we'll dig, we'll get out of that rabbit hole again. So you, you've, uh, you've had a number of successful deployments. You're under a lot of bloody stress. Um, did you realize how much stress you were under at the time? Not a clue. And not a clue. How, how did you first become aware that you were coming unraveled? Um, Would you say you were so, coming unraveled? Is that too harsh? No, that's that's a that's a valid statement, um, 100%. I mean, you know me. I'm a pretty relaxed guy. Anybody who knows me, I'm pretty relaxed, and it usually takes a lot to get me riled up. Yeah. Um, very even-tempered. Um, I started noticing um, that, that temper, my temper was getting short that there was things that would trigger me into outbursts. Um, 
quicker for no reason. Um, I remember one incident, you know, I had just returned back from my tour in 2007 and, uh, I was, we were driving in the car with my wife at the time and we were heading out to dinner and this guy was backing out of a stall. Uh, we were on this two, two lane side street from our house and this guy was backing out of a stall and uh, he didn't see us. So my wife hit her horn and uh, to honk at him just to say, hey, man, you're going to hit us. And he turned around and gave us the finger. <laughs> well, that triggered me for some reason, and I lost it. I jumped out of the car, and I went up to the driver's door, and I was just about to put my fist through the glass. Yeah. And uh, I looked in the back seat, and I saw you had kids in the car, which immediately, you Check know, it. I was like, what the hell am I doing? What the hell am I doing, right? Check pace. Um, but that was, I noticed that things. Yeah, you're you not normally the guy to go leaping out of a car. and. Uh, no, like, yeah. but that was just, you know, after driving, when you're driving in places like Afghanistan, you know, in Kandahar City, where you're under high threat and you're constantly scanning the ground looking for threats and anything that could be a potential threat, you react, right? Yeah. And for some reason, my brain looked at this guy as a threat. Um, and, and yeah, so that was like the first thing that I was like, what the hell? And did and, your uh, wife bring that up? Um, she, not really. She thought it was weird. Uh, she's like, what the hell's wrong with you? Um, and, uh, you know, and I won't really talk about her because she was in the military as well. And I don't have her permission to talk about her experiences, but you know, she was in the military and we actually deployed at the same time at one point with two kids at home. Oh no, no kids. Okay. No kids. Um, but we were both deployed in 2007. She was on the main base and I was up at the FOB. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, she had her own things to deal with, I'm sure. But, you know, she was just like, okay, that's, you know, are you okay? Are you cool? Are we done? You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we divorced shortly after that. And, uh, for reasons related to PTSD or unrelated. Um, I would say unrelated. We just, again, that's a whole other rabbit hole, but yeah. long story short, from the time that we were together, we had, again, she was in the military and Afghanistan was the big thing. Yeah. Between the two of us in our marriage, we had deployed to Afghanistan uh, five times between the two of us mm -hmm. in the time we were married. So we never saw each other. There was one tour. I was literally walking off the Herc and she was walking on the Herc as it was flying out of Kabul. It was like, high five, hey babes, keys are on the table, see you when I get home type yeah, deal. Yeah. Um, so we just grew apart, and there's no animosity at all there. Yeah, uh, she happens. Was, yeah it, it happens. She's a great lady. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was after that that I just noticed that my temper was kind of getting short. Um, and then things kind of went into a lull for a bit, as they do with PTSD, and then you cope. Um, you find a way to cope. Well, did you, were you thinking in terms of PTSD uh, early on or what were you thinking? Not even, I was just thinking burnout. Yeah. I was just like, I've been going, I've been burning out. Maybe I need to take a break. You Which know, it's kind of what your, your unit who were, who denied you. you exactly. Denied. They, exactly. So what were they noticing then? 
or or were um, they just being precautionary? I think I think they were just being precautionary because they never brought anything up to me. They were just like looking at my file and saying, "Hey, you know what? We think you should slow down a bit." Um, there's lots of other tours out there. Let somebody else go. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be the guy that always goes. And of course, uh, we all want to go. At 100%. Yeah. And I think part of it there too is survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. right? You know, I have four deployments there and I still made it home. So I think that's added on over the years too, where I look at people that were on their first, you know, never made it home. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, there's that layer of the whole thing as well, which didn't really sink in until later, later on. Because you just you find as a soldier, you know, you find a way to deal with it. You find a way to push it aside and bury it, and uh, you and go from you there. Quietly suck it up or throw yourself into more work or. Oh, totally! And I came from a generation like I joined in 1990, so it wasn't even called PTSD back then. It was still called combat stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and we took those combat stress courses in first aid or whatever it was, yeah, to, yeah. you know, shell shock. I think they still use that term in the first aid book, shell shock. Yeah. I, I uh, think they were starting to get away from shell shock and we're can't remember what they were calling it after that. Yeah. I think it took Croatia and, you know, some of that bit to finally wake it up, but it was, it was still frowned upon. It was still, it was not talked about openly anyway. Um, Amongst the troops, amongst the ranks. Um, I, w- I would say within the last decade, and I've been out of the military for a while, so maybe a little longer than that, has PTSD is coming to the fore, and it's it's becoming uh, more, um, it's becoming more of an accept- acceptable uh, diagnosis for you to carry with you. Um, you're not... 100%. You know, people aren't going, oh, there's a nutcase, unless you've been doing some really nutty things, and then they... Unless, yeah. unless you really are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but even then, that's a derogative. You shouldn't be doing that. But yeah. it's, I think that's, you know, that's part of my reason when you, you ask for me to tell my story. And, uh, you know, still being in the military today, you know, with 32 years in, I see these some of these young guys, and there's still a bit of a stigma. There's still... They're scared to go get help. They're scared to to go to mental health. And I try and tell them, man, like, go. They're not going to kick you out. They're only going to kick you out if you ask them to kick you out, if you go down that road. And I always give my example. I said, for me, look at me. I am 100% diagnosed with PTSD. It's on my file. Veterans Affairs claim has, you know, done. I am Veterans Affairs has me down as having PTSD but I still wear the uniform every day. Yeah. You're still doing the job. I'm still doing the job. So it doesn't, it shouldn't be the way it was, you know, of the immediate, you're diagnosed with PTSD. Oh, they're going to kick you out. I'm going to lose my job. Um, Oh my God, I got to keep this. No, it's not like that. I mean, there's ways to deal with it. There's things that you can do. Um, so what, what things have you done? Uh, for me, one, it's finding a hobby is a big thing to keep your brain occupied, even though I'm still serving. Yeah. Um, physical fitness, uh, trying to do something, um, whether it's going for, you know, a mountain bike ride or a rollerblade or just taking that hour every day to kind of, you know, get, get the adrenaline going and, and clear the mind. Um, sort of clear your head, put you in touch with and, how and, you're actually feeling. 
Yeah, and you know the mindfulness, that sort of stuff. And have um, you found mind, mindfulness uh, helpful? Um, for me, I have to be in a certain mood. It uh, it doesn't work all the time, right? And it's and it's sometimes hard to find a place where you have zero distractions, zero noise, and just or, zen out, or be enough of a, yeah zen master to be able to zen that out. I'm yeah, not, and I'm not there. there. I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, neither am I. So, um, but so other yeah. than anger, angry outbursts, were did you have any anything else that was? Um, pointing towards PTSD? Uh, my drinking increased heavily. Um, in my really, really dark moments, I would get physically violent. Um, but my physical violence was never directed towards anyone. It was always towards inanimate objects. Um, so I would always, yeah, wall punching walls and all that kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and that would be when I would literally go into the black and just snap. Um, and, my, and like I said, my drinking just kind of spiraled out of control. Yeah. You know, it went, you know, if I was, I would lie on those questionnaires. Yeah. Um, how many drinks do you have in a week? I'd be like, Oh, I, you know, one drink when reality, I was probably having four or five drinks a day. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even uh, binge drinking, you know, um, drinking just for the, it was, yeah. And, uh, you know, I would come home and my current wife at, now, you know, I would come home and she's like, oh, you're at the mess again. I'm like, yeah, it's not the mess again. And, uh, you know, she eventually pointed out, she's like, I think you need to go talk to somebody. Like you're, there's something going on in your head. Ah, so that's the aha that, moment. Yeah. And like she pointed out too, um, I do have nightmares as well, but I don't remember anything of my nightmares. Yeah. Um, she'll just wake me up and, or tell me in the morning, she's like, you had another nightmare last night. You're mumbling something in your sleep and, and, you know, and whimpering and stuff like that. And, and, uh, but I have zero recollection of them. Um, even tried, uh, CBT. Yeah. Stuff with my counselor and everything like that. And, and, uh, I can't recall anything in my dreams, in my nightmares. Um, so yeah, so she was the one who's like, Hey man, like one, our marriage is, you know, Rocky and, uh, I think you need help. I think, yeah. And this ain't helping. And I think you need help. Okay. So which brings me back because I kind of pulled you away from, uh, what you were doing for, uh, treatments. Uh, so your wife, we'll we'll call her your wife. We'll avoid saying your current wife because that (laughs) leaves leaves it open. (laughs) Are we not allowed to label anywhere? (laughs) Well, it's kind of like saying, it does. It's. I, I. I wouldn't want to refer to my wife as my current wife because it makes her think. Oh, he's looking for another wife. I've learned a few <laughs> things. It's only been one marriage, but I've learned a few things. <laughs> okay, I'll only use uh, that term if we're bouncing back and forth in the timeline. That way, you don't mix up my wives. <laughs> yeah, stick to the ex-wife. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm just trying to help you, man. Um, so your your wife. Um, says you're drinking too much, uh, mm-hmm. putting stress on the marriage. Um, so do you go to the medical system and what happens there? Yeah, she, she said, you need to go talk to a counselor or I'm leaving. And, uh, I said, okay, I fucking, I walked in, I said, I need an appointment with mental health. And, 
in about I did my evaluation in about two weeks time after that initial call and uh, my first meeting and and that was in 2000 and oh, when was that 2000 and 2017 was my first mental health meeting okay yeah and how did that go to, it went well um I, you know, I was definitely, and my I have a meeting today as well, um, but, you know, my therapist told me that I was resistant at the time. You know, I was your typical hard-headed military guy, you know, only giving away so much information, right. kind of, resistance you know, resistant. Yeah, you know, I'm only here because my wife told me I had to be here and type of thing. There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, exactly, and then... Uh, and then once, you know, she educated me and, and, you know, we, as the sessions went on, I was like, holy crap, I'm an asshole. Um, you know, there, there is, I'm not, I'm not the PTSD guy where, you know, a door slams and I'm under the table. Right. I'm, you know, that subconscious type of PTSD where there's just, angry outbursts that something triggers me that I just have an angry outburst for whatever reason, short temper or patience or something. So I take it you've learned to keep that in check. For the most part, I still have my days. Yeah. Um, COVID has been challenging. Um, I have a hard time with stupid people, but, uh, but yeah, it's definitely a lot better than where it was. I've completely, I haven't completely stopped drinking, um, but I've learned to only have like a social drink yeah. if friends come over, yeah. you know, I don't have a dozen beer. I have a beer, right. um, you know, so I've learned to control those things and it's, it's been definite improvements, you know? Um, okay. So just to check things off here, you've uh, gone, you've, you're seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Uh, psychologist. Psychologist. Um, so you're given mindfulness training Mm-hmm. Um, you're given CBT, two, CBT. Um, you've, uh, where was it going? Uh, mindfulness training, uh, and, uh, tools on how to control your, your anger. Um, yeah. And you're, you're, you're taking self care. So you're doing PT. Um, yeah. you're keeping your shape, your, your, your body in shape and that's keeping your brain, helping keep your brain in shape. Uh, you picked up a hobby of some sort, or maybe hobbies. Uh, anything else you've uh, done to uh, improve your overall mental health? Um, I think actually staying in the military has helped a bit as well. Um, yeah. And it's this interview was actually a huge step for me because normally I would not share anything. Um, my wife would tell you that I am not a communication expert by any means. And that... Uh, you know, I normally keep my stories and my feelings and my my thoughts just to myself. I don't share them. So why are um, you sharing? What, what's that? Why are you sharing? Because my 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 counselor, you know, um, she's she's said that you know talking. She, you don't need to share the big things, mm-hmm. but. Just she's like, just tell your story about your experiences, you know, just the basics, um, you know how 
talk about how the positives of your tour, and I don't really have too many negatives about any tour. Yeah, they were all amazing experiences. Even, even the negative uh, stuff was an amazing experience. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's, and like I said, I think that the younger generation, we need to move past this PTSD stigma. Still, I went to actually a horse therapy thing. Yeah, I've heard of locally. That. How'd it go? Yeah, I. I went to a horse therapy clinic here for a year. Um, and that was a joint OPP, uh, military and emergency services. There were paramedics and stuff there as well. And listening to their stories, I was actually like, man, should I even be here? Um, (laughs) you don't feel like yours is bad enough to share sort of thing. Yeah. I was like, you know, because the military, we have our hills and valleys. We go through, you know, moments of extreme uh, intensity and terror and then lulls of boredom when we're sitting in garrison. But emergency services and police and paramedics, they're on the go constantly. Yeah. Uh, And and that's why a buddy of mine is the OPP. And he knows I hate this, (laughs) but he does it every year anyway around Remembrance Day. You know, thank you for your service. And... My my niece, who's also a cop now in Calgary, has done the same thing. And it bugs me because these guys are out there every day. I risked my neck yeah. a few times yeah. during my career kind of things, but these guys walk out the door every, and gals, walk out the door every morning not knowing what the fuck's going to happen. And, yep. You know, it might be a boring kind yeah. of day, but it might be, man, that was fucked up. Yeah, totally. It's, it's kind of, it's funny you brought up Remembrance Day. That was also another one of my flags. Yeah. Um, I stopped going. I avoided Remembrance Day. I couldn't go anymore. Um, I would just, I'd put on the uniform and I'd be like, I can't go. Um, That's not uncommon. It, uh, it was just, that was the negative side of all those tours that I was pushing away was led that, that was the survivor's guilt piece. Like I shouldn't be standing here. I'm an imposter. Like, there's many other people that should have come home and they didn't. And then you feel guilty for not going. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the guilt is it, compounded by other guilt. Yep. Yep. 100%. Um, but yeah, the thank you service thing, like my family does it every year. They yeah. email me. They're like, Hey, just want to say thank you for your service. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> and another, another reason I hate it is because I fucking enjoyed the job so much, you know? Yeah. All, all the yeah. shitty times. All the all the freezing your ass off or somebody exploding hey, something beside you or whatever. Um, you know, I joined the military to travel, and I liked I loved heavy equipment and driving trucks. Yeah. So I joined the military to do that, drive big things and travel. And, man, the military has paid for a hell of a lot of awesome vacations for me. <laughs> That's a fact. Um, I've traveled around the world and uh, met a ton of amazing people from a lot of different countries. Um, so, yeah, it's like thanking me. Man, yeah. I should be thanking them. Uh, well, how I, get out, how I get out of it now is because uh, I was always awkward. Like, what do you say? You know, and so I just say, well, thank you for your support. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is. Yeah. yeah, I always I always fluster that one too and i probably look like an idiot like i'm being disrespectful but yeah. i really don't know how to respond to it it's... especially if it's an old vet you know you feel uh, like i w- went to the 
50th anniversary of the first special service force. We did a jump in Montana and you had all these mm-hmm. old vets and their wives coming up and, you know, thanking you and they're going, wow, you know, I've done nothing compared to this guy. You know, <laughs> he yeah. was storming the beaches in Normandy and all the other shit they were doing, you know, yeah. attacking Mount, Mount De- De- Defant- Defense. Yeah. Defense, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're rabbit hole in it here. So you've looked after yourself now. Um, things are, you would say improving. Yeah. Oh yeah. 100%. So what would you say to the young guys coming up, um, in regards to protecting their mental health, um, or if they are having issues? Um, I I think, uh, and it was alluded to in one of your other podcasts. Um, and I think a big part of it that my mental health isn't as bad, I guess, as many other people or maybe easier to deal with Mm -hmm. is the people you work with. So like the message I try to say here is you have to trust that guy next to you. You have to have 100% trust in the person next to you and in your training. And you have to employ that training when you deploy. Because if you are in a situation where shit hits the fan, if you don't trust anybody around you and you don't trust your chain of command and your leadership, you have a toxic leadership, that compounds the PTSD, I think. Oh, absolutely. um, You're you're blaming, you're you're like, God damn it, he put us in this, whatever it is. Um, You have to have that. And that's one good thing about the human world. And then moving on to Ken Sofcom, the training is outstanding. The level of training that you go through, um, the camaraderie that you build with your team, uh, there's no question about trust. There's no question no. about about anything. There was a, actually I came across a statement on a book I read about uh, spec ops, and the big the big factor this one guy made. He's like, it's not how you shoot; it's if you're gonna shoot. Yeah. And that is so true. If the guy, if you know the guy next to you and you trust him, you know, he's going to do his drills. You know, he's going to cover his arcs and he's going to have your back and same you for him. That is key. And Uh, and you're right in the soft world. That's very much uh, emphasized. Um, Well, it doesn't need to be emphasized almost, you know, it's, you know, you're part of a strong group of guys and and women in some cases. And that guy on your left, your right, your rear, wherever, you know you can you can trust them, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure you get home, and that you're going to do everything to, that you can to make sure they get home. In the conventional yeah, world, you don't you you don't do as much training together, so that bond isn't necessarily um, as close. It is it is much better in the combat arms units, of course. Um, oh, one hundred percent. Logistics needs to change its mindset. Uh, on that um it's like we're like the red-headed stepchild out there yeah uh, you don't really have a home you're moving from unit to unit constantly so you don't get to really trust the people you work with exactly you know the combat arms they have their you know if you're a strathcona you're a strathcona yeah you have that regimental pride and logistics and support health services is probably the same oh, you don't have you don't have that mothership so to speak to plant your flag in and and uh be proud someone we do a very poor job in the in the medical uh system of of 
of that, of not not knowing your history, of not knowing, like, you have Pacino Day or Partyburg or whatever that, uh, that the yeah. combat arms units have. Yeah. You know, nothing like that is celebrated within the medical system. And nope. the part of the problem where we used to have uh, UMSs in each of the unit medical stations in each of the uh, units, uh, they got pulled out, which was which was absolutely was disastrous because yeah. well, when you were a, when you were a medic with a rifle company, you got to know those guys intimately. So you knew yep. what their health issues were. So you brought whatever you whatever medications you needed on an op for that guy. Um, yep. You bonded with them. You shot with them. You humped with them. You did everything. And uh, and you yeah, and they weren't just flown in at the last minute and you know they did their workup training separately and then all of a sudden you deploy and there's like this medic there who's now you're going to look after you you yeah. don't know anything about this guy yeah, who is this guy <laughs> exactly. but when i deployed to croatia back when they had those ums's the medics were there every single day you got you saw them in the mess hall you ate with them you deployed on pre-training with them and they fixed your always you, you totally you'd go and see them and they're like hey man what's going on how's your knee what's you know they actually knew you yeah um and now it's, oh man! If you go to the UMS here, you see a different person every single day. Yeah, but we're going down our questions. We're going down our rabbit hole. We are. So. You are. Correct me. Bring me back on. <laughs> okay, check fire. All right. So we're coming up on an hour. We got about a minute and a half to go. Um, what words of wisdom do you do you have? We'll leave the last word to you. Words of wisdom. Oh yeah. boy. Other than um, don't use the term current wife. <laughs> uh, words of wisdom, I would say look at every moment as a positive, not a negative, because your attitude and how you perceive the situation is really going to affect you. Um, Do you mean take it as a everything as a learning experience? Everything as a learning experience, okay. yeah, everything. Even if everything goes pear-shaped, um, take it as a learning experience and see how you can improve from there. Um, and don't bear the weight or the guilt of anything on your own. Um, you, you can't do it. Uh, you will, you will eventually crack. Everyone has their breaking moment. Some people break sooner than others. Um, but you will break eventually. There will be the straw that breaks your back. Yeah. Those are, those are wise words to finish on for sure. Um, no man is an island onto himself kind of thing. No, no, absolutely not. All right, brother. Uh, there we are at, at, at 10 seconds away from the hour. So uh, stay on the line. I'll do a quick sign out here and uh, we'll do a talk. Sounds good. So uh, thanks a lot, Jared, for uh, showing up and uh, putting your story out there. Um, hopefully, hopefully it'll help somebody else. And uh, let's play the music. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Rock is Bacchus. Um, if you want to get a hold of Jarrett or anybody else that I interview on the show, um, feel free to, uh, contact me through Steve C. Copang at gmail.com. And, uh, I'll, uh, I'll ask whoever you want to, uh, talk to, to get in touch with you or go through me or whatever. And, uh, take care of yourselves out there because it can be a rough, mean world. It can be a hell of a good world too. Don't forget that. Cheers all.